bring you greetings as we have met together to worship today. I guess Brother Lyndon must have been referring this past week. Uh, let's see, was it in 2017? I believe we took chaplain training with CAM. And uh, the reason the chaplain program came up was that uh, rapid response people, when there's a disaster, CAM sends crews out to clean up trees, to tarp roofs, and a variety of things. And, and then the homeowners in the community would talk to the crew leaders, and, and they would get tied up in conversation. So they said, why don't they have old people, which I qualify for, to be a chaplain to, to meet the spiritual needs of the homeowners and the communities and, and so on. So then, and, and, and before the chaplain program, CAM once a year gathers across, from all across the nations, they have a conference that they bring all the rapid response team members, uh, coordinators that suits to, to an annual conference. Well, they decided, well, why not invite the chaplains to this annual a rapid response conference. So that's where we was. They usually held at Deer Creek, Ohio, which was a couple hours from the CAM headquarters. But this year it was moved to Nashville, uh, Indiana. And you probably don't know where Nashville, Indiana is, but it's an hour south of Indiana. And probably next year they'll be moving it back to Deer Creek. And so it's a time to bring all the uh, rapid response people and, and um, those involved in the ministry, chaplains, and they have a day and a half conference. So we left Tuesday morning and didn't get back till late Friday morning. So now the message this morning, uh, I don't know. I, well, yes, I do know. I don't know you personally, but I know that you all have had periods in your life, and this is the title, when nothing is happening in, your, in, in life, you, uh, okay, sometimes it seems God is not hearing our prayers, our trials and our struggles get worse, and is God's plan for my life really working? And uh, do I need to take action and help God to bring things to pass? And my verse for today is taken from uh, Psalms. You don't have to turn there. 27, 14. It says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage. He shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And you know, it recently hit me. Why does it say be of good courage when you're waiting on God? Well, if you think about that a little bit, it's because that's difficult. It's hard to wait on the Lord. For one reason, we're in an instant society and we want everything now. And so we need to wait on the Lord and be in good courage. Wait, wait on the Lord. So I want to look at some Bible characters this morning. What happened in their experience when they... When nothing was happening in their 
lives. And I want to look at briefly at Elijah and then four others. You know, Elijah was this powerful prophet, and you can turn to First uh, Kings 18, or 17 to 18. You know, Elijah was this powerful prophet, and um, we, uh, you can think about him as he, well, he ministered to this widow lady, and when he prayed, something happened. You know, he said, uh, the barrel of meal shall not waste, about uh, chapter 17, 14, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord send rain upon the earth. And verse 16 says that's exactly what happened. Well, then you can move over on the uh, next chapter on the Mount, the contest on Mount Carmel. And my wife and I had privilege of being on Mount Carmel in the month of June. And when uh, he prayed down in verse 35, 38, I'm sorry, chapter 18. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Just one prayer. Elijah prayed to God, and this is what happened. And in fact, right after that, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, get thee up. Because there's a sound of abundance of rain. And then it says, in verse 43, he said to his servant, go now look. Well, before that, in verse 42, that, that uh, Elijah was bowing on his knees and he was praying that God would send rain. And he said to his servant, go look to the sea. And he went and looked and said, there is nothing. Can you imagine that? This prophet Elijah, when he called on God, things happened. But this time, nothing happened. And, and the same thing happens in our experience when we call on God. And we may have a good case for God. We may have good intentions. We may be totally submitted to God as Elijah was. And notice what it says. That he, and he said to the servant, go again. What do you suppose Elijah was thinking? Maybe the fifth time his servant came back and said there's nothing. Nothing was happening. He was crying out to God to send rain. He'd already told Ahab the rain was coming. But yet he had no evidence that it was. And it says the seventh time, the size of a man's hand. Imagine that. A cloud at the size of a man's hand. What is that in relation to a powerful storm? But that was the sign he was looking for, and, and, and God was faithful. 
You know, the bigger danger in when nothing is happening is to make something happen. And I read this quote, God is looking for those that have an appetite for waiting, as our verse says. And we need the balance of finding that uh, as we wait on the Lord, as we serve Him. Okay, there's uh, four more I want to go into depth a little more. Let's look at Job. You're familiar with Job. You just had a a Sunday school lesson on Job, Um, a series of lessons in our last quarter, I believe, on the book of Job. You can turn to Job 1, and we'll just skim through here quickly. And just remember, let's be looking... Elijah, that we just looked at, when nothing was happening, he continued to call on the, on the Lord. He continued to pursue. And he continued in his, his pursuit in what he believed that God was going to do in, in faith. And the servant went six times and there was no evidence. But I don't believe Elijah's faith diminished. And that's a challenge for us. And of course, as we come to Job, look at, look at his character as it says in verse 1. He was a perfect man. He was upright. He feared God and he avoided evil. And it says he was the greatest man of the East. Can you imagine that? I mean, in his day, he had enough oxen that he could plow 500 acres a day if he wanted to. If you, if you read and study that. He could plow 500 acres a day. And if, if I have it right, um, no, I, I don't have it here. I was going to say when his, uh, the uh, year in which he lived, but of course we know that he lived in the early years of the history of man. And so I'm, I'm proposing in the end of the book of Job, it said that he lived 140 years after this dramatic experience in his life. And so I'm going to say he was between 50 and 60 years old when this calamity fell upon him based on the calculations of that. And he was the greatest man in the East. And, the, and it just amazes me that the spiritual perception that this man had and the spiritual concern that he had for his children and it says that he he said now Job was down in verse 5 that it says that he rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to all those of his children and he didn't even know they sinned. It said, it may be that they have sinned. You know, he was just wanting to make sure that they were covered. He didn't have evidence that they'd sinned. He was just saying, in case they sinned. That should be a challenge for us as fathers and grandfathers. Do we have that spiritual concern for, for our downline, so to speak? And what amazes me, he was the greatest man in the East. Why didn't he send his servants to do that? He didn't. He took personal responsibility to uh, have spiritual oversight of his household. 
Well, you know the story. Let's move on. And after the calamities at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, notice his mindset, his response. He said, Naked came out of my mother's womb. Naked I returned hither. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job, can you imagine in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, He took a potsherd and scraped himself with all. He sat down among the ashes. And I can imagine, he, he had these oozing sores, and I'm sure he had a foul smell. And he was there suffering. And, and see what his wife said? She said, well, just curse God and die. And she, you know what she was doing? She was tempting him to sin. She said, just, just give up. Curse God and die. And then his three friends came. And you know, I, I think we need to give his three friends some credit. I know they had a lot of accusations later on. But they heard of his calamities and they came to visit him. And I believe some of it was least good intentions, but they couldn't believe what they saw when they arrived. I mean, they were speechless for seven days. And, and, and see what it says in verse 12? It said, when they lifted up their eyes, they didn't even know him. That's how bad a shape he was in. They didn't even know Job. And he was their friend. And they wept. And they rent every one his mantle. And they sprinkled dust on their head toward heaven. This shows they were in deep sorrow for their friend Job. And for seven days they sat there. And what do you think Job thought? Nothing was happening. See, that's, that's our message this morning. Nothing was happening. They were all sitting there in dust and ashes, and nothing was happening. There was, you know, day number three was probably like day number one. Day number six was probably like day number five. Not a change. Not a change. In fact, if anything, probably Job was getting worse. And do you know who the first one that spoke was? It wasn't the friends. It was Job. And um, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. He was, you know, he was, he was feeling sorry. He was feeling, I don't know what all he was feeling, you can imagine. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? You know, why, why was I allowed to put through all this suffering? And there was still no word from the Lord. Verse uh, 26 of this same chapter says, I was not in safety, neither I had rest. Neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. And as you study the life of Job, and then his three friends start analyzing his life they give suggestions and then it gets pretty strong it's more than suggestions they give their case against job and and job is still there nothing is happening 
And they're accusing him of sin and all kinds of slander, you might say. And so finally, Job says in chapter 9, he said, oh, I wish there was a day's man. In verse 33 of chapter 9, he says, neither is there any day's man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon both of us. And a day's man means there would be a mediator, an arbitrator, a go-between that could lay his hand on Job's shoulder and, and could moderate Job's situation. And he says uh, in verse 6, I believe of this same chapter, no, it's, it's in another chapter. Uh, but can you imagine Job in his situation and nothing is happening? He's not hearing from God. He's hearing from his friends and he's suffering and nothing is happening. Now let's jump over to chapter 23. Job says in the beginning of chapter 23, he says, even my complaint is bitter, my stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I know where I might find him. He's talking about God, that I might even know where his seat is. And I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would plead he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so I would be delivered forever. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backwards, and I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doeth work, but I can't behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, and I cannot see him. In essence, Job is saying, nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. And I maintain to you that the next three verses is what pulled Job through. The next three verses, could we say, is the center of Job's life through all this trials and situations. Look at verse 10. He he had all these questions about God, but he said, He knoweth the way that I take. Job is saying, God knows the way that I'm taking. And when he's done with me, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said he knew that, even though he, it wasn't happening currently. Now Job, in the next verse, talks about himself. He says, My foot hath held his steps, his ways have I kept and not declined. Job is saying that he was trying with all his heart and all his might to be faithful to God in, in the ways of the Lord, what he knew, and he kept. And he even emphasizes in verse 12 that I have not gone back from the commandment of God's lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's powerful. 
In fact, those three verses are verses we can claim in our lives when we're going through trials and when we feel like nothing is happening. Or there's a situation over here we wish somebody would do something. Or we have a family situation that we just think can't be. Where is God in all this? But if we do what Job did, then we'll be blessed in the end. And then we can jump over to chapter 42 at the end of Job's life. And, and you know the story there. It says, <clears throat> uh, Job answered and said, I know thou canst do everything and that no, not, no thought can be withholden from thee. And as you know the account, Job's wealth was restored and his families and all that. And it says he lived another 140 years. Let that be our challenge. That when nothing is happening, God is working and he has reasons that we, we don't know about. The next person I want to look at is Abraham. He, he is the... Uh, Symbolic of the faithful ones. Let's scan through Abraham a bit in his life. Observe what happened when nothing was happening in his experience. Let's start out with uh, Genesis 13. Toward the end of the chapter 13, God is telling Moses, uh, Abraham after he came into the promised land, Verse 16 or verse 15 of Genesis 13, he says, For the land which thou seest I will give thee and thy seed forever. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. If the man can count the dust of the earth, then thy seed shall be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, the length of it, the breadth of it, and I will give it to thee. Then Abram removed his tent came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar to God. So God simply said, I'm giving you this land and your seed's going to inherit it. Why don't you go out and travel and look at it? And, um, and, and it says that he built an altar, so he, I believe he worshiped God. We'll turn over to chapter 15 in Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, I am thy shield and thy great reward. So Abraham, I'm not sure how much time had elapsed between when he was promised the land, he toured the land, and now God is coming back to him again, affirming that promise. But Abraham raises a question in verse 2. What will thou give me, seeing I go childless? So apparently there's been some time since he said that you're going to inherit this land with, with your seed. And Abraham says, I haven't had any seed. So this was one of the ways that Abraham attempt to help God. And it's the way we do at times. 
He said, I have this servant here, this Eliezer of Damascus. He said, why don't you, he, if, you if there's somebody born to him, that's the same as somebody in my house. Let him be the seed. And God comes back and says, no. He says, um, the seed... says, Behold, the word of the Lord in verse 4 came to him, saying, This shall not be their heir, but he shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Then in verse 6 it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But you see, time went on. Year after year. Year after year. And no child showed up for Abram and Sarah. Well, you go over to chapter 16, notice what it says down about verse 3. Okay, we're, we're, it's 10 years now since they've been in the land of Canaan and no seed. And remember that God told Abraham to go look at the land because I'm giving you as your child and your seed. So Sarah got an idea when nothing was happening. Okay, so if the idea of the Eliezer of Damascus didn't work, let's try another plan. And we do that at times if we're not careful. So Sarah, Sarah said, you, you take this my servant Hagar, Hagar and let her become your wife and there's where the seed's going to be. See what our verse says? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Even though Abraham was a man of faith, and you read about him in Hebrews 11, he was a powerful, faithful man. But here where the rubber meets the road, they were trying to help God. And, and you know the story that Ishmael was born. And then we go to chapter 17. Abraham, well, God comes to Abraham in the first part of chapter 17, says that he's going to change his name from Abram to Abraham and change his wife's name. And he talks about making him exceedingly fruitful. And he comes over into verse 15 of chapter 17 and God said to Abraham for as Sarah thy wife thou shalt not call her name Sarah anymore but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her can you imagine what Abraham thought about that well Ishmael's already here why is God talking about something in the future that has never happened and they were struggling for years with this concept that never happened. 
It says Abraham 17 fell on his face and laughed in his heart. Shall a child be born of somebody that's a hundred years old? I believe what Abraham put in my words, he was, he was telling God, God, I believe you, I trust you, I know what you say is right, but let's get real. I mean, let's, let's face reality. I mean, Ishmael is here. And he said, in verse 18, Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And again, God is rejecting that. He said, Sarah shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. I guess that caught his attention. We have a name now. This son will be Isaac, not Ishmael. But still nothing was happening. Finally, in, ver in chapter 21, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time which God had spoken to him. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if God told Abraham a time or not. It says a set time, but God is always on time even when nothing was happening. And you know, the, I believe the worst thing that happened in this situation when they were trying to help God was Ishmael. You go back to chapter 16, verse 12, and it says, talking about Ishmael and his descendants, it said, he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man. And every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And that's happening today. My wife and I were just in Israel in, in June. And that, that is taking place still yet today, that he's a wild man. You know, our group met in Chicago at O'Hare to go to Israel. We went through the normal security. And as the time came to go to our gate for our nonstop 12-hour flight to Israel, and remind you, we already went through security once and was approved. And when we were sitting there at the gate to get on the plane to go to Tel Aviv, they chased us all out again set up a second security for all those going to Israel. You know why? Because Israel has enemies. They have wild men that are against the Jews. And so we had to go through security. We had to come back into our gate and it had a, a special private security for all of us that were on that flight. Do you know what the first thing we saw when we got to Israel at Tel Aviv 12 hours later? When we got, got out the door of our plane, started down the ramp, there was a soldier with a rifle. And when we got outside of him around the next corner, there was another one. A wild man. 
And do you know, when we was down at the Sea of Galilee a couple nights in our cottages, Israeli bombers went screaming over at midnight. And fortunately, my wife and I didn't wake up, but a lot of the others did. And here, Israel was bombing Damascus, Syria, that very night. See, this verse is true. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah tried. One of, the, one of the reasons is because they was trying to help God. And, a, and a, we had a Palestinian there as our tour guide. And he went over and over this again throughout our tour. How that the Jews feel this way. The Palestinians feel this way. The Arabs feel this way. And they're all there in a real close proximity. Well, even to go to Bethlehem, we had to cross a checkpoint to go to uh, Palestinian-controlled territory. And they're all there close together. And, and just like this scripture says, and he dwelled in the presence of his brethren. Okay, let's move on to King Saul. 1 Samuel 10. First Samuel 10. This is where um, pro the prophet. Let's see, verse uh, six, maybe. And the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and shall prophesy, and he shall be turned into another man. In verse 9 it says, And when he had turned his to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and those signs all came to pass that day. So you know the story. He was anointed to be king of Israel. His heart was changed. He was on a mission in God's kingdom. First Samuel 13. So it, it starts out there saying, and when, he, when Saul had reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel. So he's been, he's now two years. Saul is two years as king of Israel. And the enemy is coming up against him, the Philistines. Verse 5 of the same chapter, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sands of the seashore and the multitude. They came up and pitched in Michmash eastward and so on. And the men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for they were distressed. And the people hid in the caves and the thickets and the rocks and the high places and the pits. And... Some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, as for Saul he was yet in Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. Okay, you got that situation in mind. Got this huge army coming against him, and his own army is trembling, and they're outnumbered. And to top it all off, Samuel didn't show up a prophet at the appointed time to intercede for the kingdom. And in Saul's eyes, 
Nothing was happening. The enemy was advancing. His own people were hiding in the caves, and, and we, we saw the, some of those caves on our trip. So what was Samuel, Saul to do? Nothing was happening. He was pushed in a corner, so to speak, in his own thinking. He was, he was to the point of desperation. So, as it says later, he, said, he forced himself. And, we, and, and never, we never should do that. Never force yourself to go against what we know is God's word, his principles and his promises. And you see, just soon after he made the end of the offering, then Samuel shows up. That's so often what happens when we get desperate. When we think we have to shove something through and not wait on the Lord, then things work out after we made our blunders. And so Samuel said, It's because I saw the people were scattered for me, and now camest not in the appointed time. See, he had a plan. But he said he forced himself. And you know what happened when he forced himself? That was disobedience. And he lost the kingdom. 13, uh, you know, God took away the kingdom. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Thou hast done foolishly and not kept the commandment of the Lord. Maybe in lesser areas, thinking about forcing ourselves or, or allowing ourselves to, to, to justify things. You know, if I'm late for church, is it okay to speed so I can be to church on time? Or when we pay our IRS taxes, is it okay to be a bit shady then I can have more money to give to the church? See, that's kind of... Saul's analogy here. He forced himself. But, but we'll never be blessed. The last person I want to look at is Joseph. What did he do when nothing was happening? You can turn back to Genesis again. We can go to Genesis 37. It, this is where... His brothers, um, Genesis thirty-seven twenty-eight. It says that as then passed the Midianites, the merchantmen, they drew and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And you know, it's interesting to me. You don't hear a lot from Joseph about all the things that he suffered. But this incident is recorded later when the brothers were before Joseph when he was second in command in Egypt. They said, we would not hear when our brother pleaded for us. It came back to their mind. And as you know, the story, Joseph was 
was in Egypt with Potiphar, and he, he went through all that, and he was accused falsely and put into prison. And Joseph was in prison, as you know, and he told, a, he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer and the baker. And notice what Joseph says in chapter 40, verse 14. He says, But think on me when it shall be well with you, and show kindness, I pray, unto me. Make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. Can you hear Joseph pleading? And nothing was happening. Listen, verse 41, uh, chapter 41, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass at the end of two full years. Can you imagine that? Maybe Joseph never even saw daylight. It says he was in a dungeon. Even though he, he was the chief in the dungeon, but he was still in the dungeon. Maybe he didn't, and can you imagine the dungeon, the smell, maybe the inferior food, the darkness. Two full years, nothing was happening. Joseph had no hope. For two full years, he was stuck. How do you suppose Joseph felt? You know, we, we give in a lot quicker than that. A lot of times. Where is our faith? Where is our waiting on the Lord? No wonder that verse says, Be of good courage and wait on the Lord when nothing is happening. And then, as you know the story, Joseph was delivered. Because the butler said, I remember my faults this day. And he was delivered. And he was second in command in Egypt. In fact, it says that nobody could raise their foot or hand or whatever unless, unless by Joseph. And... Joseph was faithful through all that. But the challenge I want to leave with you from Joseph is in chapter 45, when his brothers, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and this was Joseph's response to their brothers. He says, now there, in verse 5 of 45, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. That just blows me away. Can we have that attitude of forgiveness when somebody has wronged us or when a number of people have wronged us? or when nothing is happening, can we have that attitude that it's God that's bringing this to pass?
So, so depending on how we wait on the Lord is how spiritually mature we are. You know, may we learn from Abraham not to run ahead from God. And the lesson we should learn from Saul is that he, <clears throat> that we should always obey even though it seems like disobedience will accomplish more. Sometimes that's the way it seems, that disobedience will accomplish more for us and God. And Joseph, in all of his suffering, could still say God was doing it. And let's remember Job. When God, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Shall we sing?